0: Somebody asked me once what I, what I had learned most since I came to St. Herman House, which had been there for many years. I can not take credit for a lot of the work it does. And the, the thing that's struck me the most is that the needy folks we serve, the poor we serve, the homeless we serve, they're all me. They're all me. Because spiritually, you know, I was in bad shape as they are at points in my life. And all of us enter this world in, in ne- needing to be placed in a relationship with Christ. You know, in the ideal world, it's as an infant in holy baptism, but we still go through things in life. And you know when we when we hear tomorrow the gospel read, which will say, "I was thirsty and you gave me drink, and you, I was naked and you clothed me, I was sick and you visited me," all all those things were asked to do. It has struck me since I've been at Saint Herman's, face to face, not with a class of people, but with their humanity, their hopes and dreams, the, their their personhood, that that. I'm really not any different from them. That I was thirsty, I was thirsty, and the church gave me living water to drink. You know, I was sick, and the church became a hospital for my recovery. I was in prison and in bondage to the things I struggle with. And Christ visited me in His community the church. I was naked and he gave me a garment of salvation. I was hungry and he gave me his flesh to eat. You know, I think one of the reasons Jesus wants to, wants us to help people in need, it's it is an encounter with him. He said, if you've done it under the least of one of these, you've done it unto me. But in encountering him, what do we always encounter? Ourselves. <laughs> We encounter ourselves. So, just kind of a a deeper understanding, I guess, of what God has done for me is a lot that's come out of the work at St. Herman's Focus, Cleveland. Well, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, this evening and in the two sessions tomorrow after the liturgy and again after lunch, we're discussing... Uh, a, a series that I've entitled "The Highway to Heaven" is a staircase, and it really is reflections on the Sermon on the Mount. It's about the Sermon on the Mount, and particularly the Beatitudes, which I have I have embraced and come to see as as my program, <laughs> my step program, if you will, towards a more spiritual life, a more godly manner of living. You know, I want to get, begin by telling a little story. Two years ago, we had a, a monastic who, you know, monks aren't perfect, and he had come to St. Herman sent there by a bishop from Australia because he had fallen into alcohol abuse. And he had had a problem with it many years before, before he entered the monastic life and he'd been sober over 20 years. And and he came to St. Herman's, and you know, the truth of the matter is, he was such a blessing to us. You know, he, he had had this struggle, yet he just became a friend to everybody that came in there. and And really had a dynamic impact for the four months he was there, but he hadn't been there three months before he found out he had stage four lung cancer. So he passed away after a short time, but he ended well. <laughs> he ended well and on the right track. And he liked to tell a story which some of his brother clergy told at the mercy meal at his, after his funeral. And the story went like this. There were uh, two converts who had just become Orthodox. And as we all know, converts often have tremendous zeal. And converts want to do it all. They want to do it to the fullest. They want to do it to the max. They want to do it in strictness. They want to do it right. So there was great zeal and they wanted to visit a monastery. So they, they went to their pastor, said they wanted to visit a monastery. He recommended one and so they called the abbot of the monastery, made all the arrangements. They got in their car, you know, the date was set and they, they drove to the monastery. And as they approached, when they were just a few minutes away, they called the abbot and said, we're almost there. They were so excited. They couldn't wait to be there. And the abbot had walked out and met them at the gate. You know, And of course, if you've ever been to a monastery, the, often they'll bow to you. And these, these young converts like, man, this is going to be great. This is going to be the ultimate. So they parked their car near the image entrance and the abbot was walking to the dormitory where the monks stay and there was some guest room on one end of it. And as they were walking, the converts, one of them looked up on the balcony of the third level and he punched his friend that was with him and pointed up there and on the balcony was an old monk sitting in a rocking chair in his cassock with his feet up on the balcony no shoes on smoking a cigarette and reading a newspaper and they they were troubled (laughs) this was not what they came to see you know they came to see great holiness great zeal and so they just this inner struggle was going on and they they got into their room the abbot got them settled he told him that he would come get him before the first service. And as the abbot was walking out, one of the young men said, Wait a minute, wait a minute. I, did, does that monk always sit up there on the third floor like that? And the abbot said, Well, we've talked to him about it. I'll say something to him. He said, Well, I just found that very disturbing. That's not what I expected to see. And the abbot said, You know, I understand how you feel. And, and he's, he's one of our brothers. We're working with him. But well, the other convert was a little more indignant. And he said, you know, for how long has he been like this? Oh, for many years. He's, You know, we've struggled many, many years. He said, well, why haven't you removed him? He should be removed from the monastery. You've got to tell him to go. And the abbot said, oh, no, we could never do that. You should have seen him when he got here. <laughs> so the point of that story that I love, I really think God judges us more on our progress, and the abbot was seeing progress. We don't always see it, but God sees it. Hopefully our spiritual fathers see it if we are indeed progressing. God will judge us on our progress. He judges us on whether or not we are changing for the better. And He has defined progress for us, I believe, in the Sermon on the Mount. You know, the topics that we're going to discuss in the highway to heaven is the staircase. In tonight's section, we're going to talk about Matthew 5, 1 through 16. That's the Beatitudes, Christ's roadmap to the kingdom of heaven, the eight-step program, the Beatitudes. And then tomorrow morning, I'm coupling these, I, I usually do it as five, but I'm going to talk about what Christ expects along the way, an attitude of righteousness without hypocrisy, and also, staying in shape for the journey, the three exercises for spiritual fitness, prayer, fasting, and almsgiving. And then after lunch, we'll talk about trusting Jesus to survive the climb. And finally, in that session, we'll go over avoiding the pitfalls on the highway to heaven. You know, a lot of people look at the Sermon on the Mount and some of it may be due a little bit to the way it's dealt with in the lectionary as a collection of proverbs and wise sayings. But there's a reason it has been called the Sermon on the Mount for all these centuries. There's a reason our fathers call it a sermon. It is because it is a, a cohesive teaching about how, what a Christian is supposed to look like. And it has a beginning, the Beatitudes, the main point, the introduction. And I believe everything else he talks about is really to support and to help us do the Beatitudes. And it has a conclusion as well. You know, and this doesn't originate with me. You'll find it in the fathers. But sometimes I think we forget. Sometimes I think it's good to call ourselves back to the basics, and to the obvious. I have entitled this series, The Highway to Heaven is a Staircase, because I want to look at each of these as a step. You know, perhaps it would be better to use the analogy of a ladder, as St. John Climacus did, and there's many other analogies that could be used. But the point is, it isn't easy. It isn't all coasting downhill once you believe, or once you are baptized. The path is not wide, it is not narrow, it is narrow, (laughs) excuse me, as the Scripture teaches. Nor is it a gentle slope upward. The path to the Kingdom of Heaven requires faith, it requires works, it requires effort, and it requires exertion. It is not easy. I have chosen a staircase, as I said, because we're going to look at specific steps, the eight steps of the Beatitude. You know, and just a side note, my interest in this is not unrelated to the work I do at St. Herman's. You know, I have many men that are going to 12-step programs. We have a 12-step program at the house and I was doing a little reading in this, I think his name's Bill Wilson, was one of the founders of AA. His program was informed by the the Beatitudes. And You know, it occurred to me, again, learning about myself from the people I'm trying to help, all of us are addicts. We don't like to think of ourselves that way. But we are. We all have our addictions. We're addicted to worry, we're addicted to despair, we're addicted to pride, we're addicted to anger, we're addicted to food, we're addicted to uncontrolled tongue, we're addicted to jealousy. We, we hold on to these things, and a lot of us have one or two that's our particular Achilles heel. We do. Now, I'm sure I'm right about this. You know, I'll tell you what, you fathers that hear confessions, speaking of Achilles' heel, you know, and most of you know that I used to serve in our archdiocese as a priest, so I heard a lot of confessions. Almost whenever I saw somebody coming up for confession, and it's, I'm not clairvoyant, I'm not even that smart, but what I can tell you is I almost always knew what they were going to confess if they came more than once. The second time is going to be the same thing, and the third time is going to be the same thing, and the fourth time it was going to be lust. A lot of people are addicted to lust. They're addicted to their tongue. They're, I mean, it, you, you, when you get to know your flock, you kind of get to know this one's struggling with this, this one's struggling with it. But well, they need a program, and there is a program, and it's most epitomized in the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount holds a unique place in both the Scriptures and in the liturgical life. So, first of all, with respect to the Scriptures, with respect to the Scriptures, one could argue that is one of only three or four complete sermons that we have from Jesus. There's the Sermon on the Mount. If you look at the New Testament, his instructions to the 70 is kind of a complete sermon. The Sermon on the Mount of Olives pertaining to end times and His farewell address towards the end of the Gospel of John. We do have many other teaching quotes, words recorded from the very mouth of the risen Savior. And we think we can all agree that Jesus is the greatest preacher ever to walk the face of the earth. In fact, one could say that he preached using, and I've delineated, seven different techniques he used in his preaching and teaching. The first, I've already mentioned, are his sermons. But secondly, he told stories. He told countless parables. You know, last week, the Sunday of the Prodigal Son, was one of his great parables, great stories that he told You know he could have just said you need to repent and turn from your wicked ways but by illustrating it he gives us a manifold levels to relate to the story and even by doing in the form of perils he tells us a whole lot about god the father i was reading the other day saint Nikolai velomirovic said that the father that greeted the prodigal son is like God the Father, because that Father had great patience, great forgiveness, and great joy. So we learn things from these stories that Jesus tells. Jesus shocked people. He often used hyperbole. He taught using outrageous examples, exaggerations, shocking statements. Some of them are in the Sermon on the Mount. These statements were not all meant to be taken literally, but they definitely got the point. For example, Jesus didn't really mean we have to rip out our eyes and amputate our hands if they're causing us to sin. Otherwise, all Christians would be blind amputees, would we not? (laughs) He also didn't mean that people He spoke to literally had logs in their eyes also in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus was simply making a very clear point. Jesus said things that shocked people to make his point. Fourthly, Jesus crafted memorable sayings. He spoke poetically. Sometimes we lose a little bit of it in the English language, and it's more clearly seen in the Greek, which may not have even been in what he was speaking. But sayings like, Judge not that you be not judged. You know, juxtaposing... The same word in di- different ways. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. We remember these things because of the manner in which he delivered them. Jesus asked questions, you know, and often he wouldn't tell the answer. If I think if I'm getting the story right, there was one time where the Pharisees, they came to him and they said, by whose authority do you teach and cast out and do all these things. And Jesus didn't answer the question. He asked another question. He said, well, let me ask you a question. By whose authority does John the Baptist do what he did? And now the Pharisees were had. If we say of the devil, the people will, will mob us. And if we say of God, then we have to believe what he said. So, He used questions in a powerful way. He used object lessons. Jesus often used object lessons to communicate to His audience. He washed the feet of the disciples to teach servant leadership. He called a little child into His midst to discuss childlike faith. He described unselfish giving after watching a widow drop the widow's mite into the temple offering. When he told the parable of the sower, there's a good chance you can almost imagine with some of these that they were standing by a field watching someone sow. Seventh, Jesus used repetition. Jesus helped his audience learn his lessons by frequently repeating himself. He taught the same major themes again and again. For example, Jesus spoke of his death and resurrection over and over again, and the disciples still didn't get it woe to you you know we'll be reading that (laughs) soon i think that's the first week woe to you scribes and pharisees woe to you whitewashed tombs woe to you brood of vipers you know you know some of the reasons we remember great speeches is because they use the same technique that jesus did did any of you just see that movie about winston churchill did anybody we will fight them in France. We will fight them on the beaches. We will fight them in the air with our growing air power. We will fight them on the seas. We will fight them in the mountains. We will fight them, you know, in the streets. We will never surrender. Why do we remember that? Because <laughs> it's a great technique. <laughs> and Jesus used it. And, you know, another one, I, I saw a video of this. You know, Martin Luther King gave a speech on the steps of the Capitol in Jackson, Mississippi. And he started out, you know, uh, you know, it was that how long speech, how long, not long. By the time he was through, everybody was responding, how long, not long. Because no lie can live forever, how long, not long? Because you shall reap what you sow, how long, not long? Because the ark of the mortal universe is long, but bends towards justice, Jesus martial language because He was the Word to change the lives of people. Liturgically, the Sermon on the Mount has a very important place in our lives. The Beatitudes are recited by many Christians in daily and personal devotions. They're recited in the office of the Typica, which we observe at least the first Sunday of every month is a reader service at St. Herman's, and they're most notably, and I understand you do this here, not all of our churches do, at the little entrance on Sunday morning. You know, if you think about it, you can, uh, you know, the priest comes out with the gospel book. And, and by the way, that, that is the chief icon of the first part of the liturgy. He comes out with the gospel book the Word. And it's and we don't see it as just words, we see it as the Word, so we vest it in gold! And here it comes. And it comes after we've heard the voice of the prophets, particularly on a feast day, but in some jurisdictions, in the OCA, you hear it more directly with the Psalms, that are chanted for the first antiphon, the second antiphon, And those antiphons mention things like, you know, he's coming to deliver the oppressed. And then, lo and behold, here he comes. And the, the, the question should be asked in our minds, and I hope you never listen to the Beatitudes the same in the future. I hope you listen to it differently, son. The question should be asked, he's here! The prophets are right! He's come into the world! See Him there. Look at Him. What's He going to say? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. They shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemaker, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are you when you are persecuted for my name's sake; for yours is the kingdom of heaven. And you know, you know, the church has given us the response to that. By the way, remember me when you come into your kingdom. I'm I'm like the thief. I can't I can't do this I need your power so we we respond to it in humility but the expectation is still that we do it you know those of you that have been through catechism and have learned your catechism well know that we divide the liturgy into two parts we un- it, we we celebrate it as a whole but there's the there's different terms that are used the the synaxis and the Eucharist, you know, the liturgy of the Word, the liturgy of the sacrament. You know, I want to give you a different word to think about it. Think about that first part as the liturgy of the program. The liturgy of the program. And the second part as the liturgy of the power. (laughs) The liturgy of the program and the liturgy of the power. The program is that we're being taught We're hearing the voice of the prophets. We see it fulfilled in the coming of Jesus. We hear His teaching epitomized in the Beatitudes. We hear from the epistle, the words of the apostles. And then we hear from the gospel, more of the very words of Jesus. We're taught, we're instructed. And when we hear it, and when we receive it, and if we receive it in humility, our response has to at least be, I'll do it, but I need help. And help comes immediately, the liturgy of the power. Because now He comes with the next, the chief icon of the second part is seen in the great entrance, the chalice, the patent. We see Him come as in, as the Word to teach us and now He comes in the flesh to deliver us, to save us. You know, and I, I think scripturally almost... You know, we need, to, we need to make sure that we're looking at the liturgy, particularly the, the second part of the Eucharist, very much in light of the transfiguration. I think we often tend to look of it more in light of the cross, <laughs> the tomb and the resurrection. That's Western theology to do that. We mentioned the cross, the tomb, the resurrection on the third day and the second and glorious coming. But when we receive communion, we we do not simplify what we're giving. The servant of God, Joel, receives the precious and holy body of our Lord and God and Savior Jesus Christ for the remission of sin. That's initiation. That's to get you (laughs) started in the life everlasting so that you can begin to live the life, so that you can be deified, transfigured, changed. You know, were anybody here a a Roman Catholic before you became Orthodox? All right, so you you might be able to correct me if I'm wrong. I know I'm right in some sectors, but when you receive communion in the Catholic Church, what do they say to you? You remember? They don't say blood, I don't think. The body of Christ. The body of Christ, the body of Christ, the body of Christ, the body of Christ. Now look, it's not bad. I'm not judging that. It's, it's only part. The emphasis is on the sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins and not for the life everlasting, which is, you see, you know what, you know that scripture where it says, um, Jesus said, some of you will not taste death, until you see the kingdom in power. Guess what happened, what the next big event after he said that, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. What? Transfiguration. Look, go look at it, Matthew 16, Mark chapter 9, Matthew, uh, Luke chapter 9. He says that, and in, in the two of them almost immediately he's transfigured. You see, when he gives the Beatitudes, we see the kingdom life. And when he's transfigured, we see the kingdom power. And when we hear it in the liturgy, we're called to live it. And when we receive communion, we're given the power to do it. All right. I don't know where I am. (laughs) I'm in Memphis at St. John. Okay, all right, we're going to go there. All right, I'm going to do one last thing. I I tend to ramble. Father Gordon Walker was my godfather, if you ever knew Father Gordon. He was a rambling man. He was a rabbit trail guy, but but a good guy. If you look at the first four, just to set up chapter 5 a little more, if you look at the first four chapters of Matthew, you've got the birth of Jesus, the flight into Egypt, the baptism of Jesus, the temptations of Jesus, the calling of the twelve disciples. And at the end of chapter 4, right before He delivers the Beatitudes, we read these few verses. So he got His apostles with Him. And Jesus went about all Galilee teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. Then his fame went throughout Syria, and they brought to him all sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments, and those who were demon-possessed, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. Great multitudes followed him from Galilee and from Decapolis, Jerusalem and Judea. And then we go to chapter 5. Because you almost need to read that because it's chapter. He's just been with all the multitudes, and he, then he says, "And seeing the multitudes, he went up into the mountain. He went up into the mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him, and then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, so." In this setting, now in Luke, you see him delivering some of the Beatitudes to the multitude. So he must have been teaching this over and over. But this seems to be almost like the first primary thing. Seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain, brought his disciples to him, sat down, and, you know, I'm just going to inject what I think part of what may have been going on. He sat them down and said, look, this is what you're going to have to teach these multitudes on how to get to heaven. I mean, Jesus is, is he's not overwhelmed as God, but in His humanity, He's pouring Himself out, and He knows, look, I've got, to, I've got to give this to you in a way so that it can continue to be delivered, particularly after my parting from you in the ascension. He wasn't speaking to multitudes. He was speaking to his disciples. It would be the central message of their preaching. And by the way, I don't even read the rest of the New Testament quite. I mean, go read Peter's epistles. Go read James' epistles. You see little they're pulling things from this sermon all over the scriptures. So the first beatitude, step one, is, "Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who recognize their spiritual poverty, their need for God. We are powerless over our willfulness and our sinfulness, and without recognizing it, we'll never begin to progress. And the final destination of taking the first step is proclaimed. This is the beginning of your journey to heaven. For for yours is the kingdom of heaven. It's like in the liturgy. We announce where we're going at the start of the liturgy of the word. Blessed is the kingdom. Jesus announces where this is going to take you from the first step. From the very first step. Saint Jerome said, Do not imagine that poverty is bred by necessity. For he who added in the Spirit... Blessed are the poor in spirit. So you would, he added that, so you would understand blessedness to be humility and not poverty. Blessed are the poor in spirit who, on account of the Holy Spirit, are poor by willingly and freely admitting who they are. So we have to recognize our poverty of spirit, but it's not enough. That's why this isn't a collection of Proverbs. You know, there's a lot of people that know they're a mess. They know they're a mess, but they're not doing anything about it. And so the next step, there has to be some compunction. There has to be some grief. There has to be some sorrow over our poverty of spirit. The next Statement in the scriptures, and by the way, before we're done tomorrow afternoon, we will have read the whole Sermon on the Mount, which actually is the best part (laughs) of what we're doing this weekend. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. The recognition of spiritual poverty must be followed by genuine sorrow, mourning, grief, even tears. Comfort calls to mind the work of the Holy Spirit in the heart. Of the grieving sinner. Look, if you mourn over your sins, the Spirit is going to show you what to do. He's going to give you direction. But there has to be that grief, there has to be that sorrow. That's the beginning of the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit, the comforter, who directs to the next step. And I I really think He used the word comfort there for a reason. So St. Cremadius, who is was the saint of the church, says, "...the blessed of whom Jesus speaks are not those bereaving the death of a spouse or the loss of a cherished servant. Rather, He is speaking of those blessed persons who do not cease to mourn over the iniquity of the world or the offenses of sinners with a pious, duty-bound sentiment." And what does He mean by sentiment? Identifying with, I'm part of the iniquity. I'm part of the problem to those who mourn righteously over their sin. Therefore, they will receive, and not undeservingly, the consolation of eternal rejoicing promised by the Lord. But it's not enough either. Step three. See, you've got you to keep moving. <laughs> Step three is, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And the word meek really, I think, in the orthodox context means a meek person is a person who will submit their will to the will of God. It's not weakness. It's, you know, gentleness is a little bit of a weak word in our culture. It, you know what? It takes a man to be meek <laughs> or a strong woman. It takes somebody who wants to follow Jesus, man or woman, to be meek to submit what you want to do to what he wants us to do and how he wants us to live. Meekness is submission of our own will to the will of God, and in so doing, we begin to take control of the world around us. Those who reject this are overcome by the world. That is to say, the earth inherits him. I want you to think about that line. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. If that's true, then the converse must be true. If you're not meek, if you want to do your own will, the world is going to own you. And you know, you know, this, you know I've taught on this at the house. You know, it, they, it, a lot of them are very infant stages in their, their life spiritually. But this all resonates with them. The fact of the matter is, you know, particularly if you're talking about substance abuse, it, it can own you where you can get to a point where no longer are you telling it when you're going to have a drink. It's telling you when to take a drink. And that can be true with the lust of the flesh. It can be true with anger. It can be true with jealousy. You know, I even, you know, I think, you know, despair can be, kind of a thing we hang on to that we don't want to let go of. Maybe it's because of the attention we get. You know, maybe there's legitimate physiological things going on, but the fact of the matter is, even if that's the case, we have to move. We have to submit our will to the will of God so that so that we can have control of the earth. Now, you know, some of the fathers, and I actually read a little book by Bishop Dimitri, he, he interprets that by Bishop Demetrius of Dallas, you know, a blessed memory, as, as referring to the, the age to come. But, but some of the fathers in Chrysostom don't say that, which kind of supports my point. Chrysostom says, what kind of earth is referred to here? Some say a figurative earth. But this is not what he's talking about. For nowhere in the Scripture do we find any mention of an earth that is merely figurative. But what can this beatitude mean? Jesus holds out a prize perceptible to the senses, even as Paul also does. In other words, perceptible to our senses now. Even as Paul also does. For even when Moses had said, Honor your father and your mother, he added, For so shall you live long upon the earth. Talking about now. And Jesus himself says again to the thief, Today you will be with me in paradise. Today, in this way, he does not speak only of future blessings, a new earth, but also of present ones in this life now. An experience of the age to come, an experience of Christ that allows you to overcome the world. Because it wants to overcome you. (laughs) It does. It does for sure. You know, if you, if you if you submit your will to the will of God, your desires will begin to change. You're, you're not going to do step four <laughs> unless you do three, and you're not doing three unless you do two, and you're not doing two unless you do one. But, but by submitting to will, uh, your will to the will of God, you're going to want different stuff. So we have the fourth beatitude, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. I, I like the old King James, and I'll tell you why. It says, for they shall be satisfied. You know, uh, most everybody here knows who Mick Jagger is. But uh, even us old gray hairs, we, 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 we don't know it from vintage LPs. We, we were there, <laughs> right? I can't get no satisfaction, right? Why couldn't he get any satisfaction? Because the things he was hungering and thirsting after don't last. They're temporary. They're temporary. If you want a satisfaction and a feeling that can last and that can be there, even when everything's going wrong, <laughs> you've got to get your desires reoriented. and you're not going to do it unless you're obedient to God, unless you're meek. Unless you're meek. Saint John Chrysostom says, note how drastically he expresses it. For Jesus does not say, Blessed are those who cling to righteousness, but blessed are those who hunger. I mean, it's a it it, it can become a drive like eating if we submit our will to the will of God. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, not in a superficial way but pursuing it with their entire desire. So, the Holy Spirit redirects our desires. We become spiritually happy, feel satisfied. The unrighteous only fulfill temporal desires. You know, I don't know whether this is true or not, but again, part of the work I'm doing now, it has occurred to me when I see people with addictions. I and, mean, you know, people pursue addictions and they pursue lust and they pursue... They, we pursue it like a hunger, don't we? It's like a passion. But particularly people with substance abuse, you know, it. I think there's a part of it that's a misdirected attempt to return to paradise. You might ask, well, how can that be? You're nodding your head. You probably know what I'm talking about. It's like... What is paradise? It's a place where there's no more sorrow, no more sighing, no more sickness, no more pain. And if I drink enough, the sorrow, the sickness, the sighing, the pain will all go away until you get sober. And then it's worse than it was when you started. And the same with every other spiritual propensity, many of which, most of which, have nothing to do (laughs) with substance abuse and we all war against it we all war against it steps one through four are all about you the first four steps are about you steps five through eight impact the lives of others you know if you if you don't begin to you know recognize your spiritual poverty grieve over your sins submit your will to the will of god begin to pursuing different things you're just not going to be very good to anybody else on their spiritual journey i'm not saying that there's you know look we're all made in the image of god there's some goodness out there you know that 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 we have to acknowledge is good But the the fact of the matter, in our reality, you're just going to be so weak and ineffective if you don't work on yourself. Which, of course, St. Seraphim, when he says, Acquire a peaceful spirit and thousands around you will be saved, certainly pursuing righteousness and being satisfied is connected to that. So we'll go to the next step. Step five, which begins, all of a sudden it turns from just inward to outward. Blessed are the merciful. That's, that's something you show to others. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. As the kingdom of heaven begins to take root, take hold in you, then you can begin to show mercy to others. And it's not just temporal good works, but identifying with the fact that everyone has spiritual poverty. You know, again, one of the ways to learn that everyone has spiritual poverty Including yourself is to start trying to help people with material and temporal poverty. But, but, but the the the, the thing is, if you don't cre- create in your own life and or God gives you that real sense of humility about who you are, you're not going to see the world correctly. <laughs> you know why should you expect everybody else to be perfect when you're not? <laughs> you know you have to let this your thinking and you have to show mercy. By showing mercy, we begin to understand the mercy of God has shown to us and we become more thankful and more receptive of His mercy towards us. St. Augustine said, You may overflow with temporal things, but remain in need of eternal life. You hear the voice of a beggar, but before God... You yourself are a beggar. Someone is begging from you while you yourself are begging. As you treat your beggar, so will God treat his. That's a stark way to put that verse, isn't it? You who are empty are being filled out of your fullness. You're being satisfied out of your fullness. Fill an empty person in need so that your own emptiness may be again filled by the fullness of God." The one who is merciful is already taking the next step, which is to purify his heart. The sixth step, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are those who are unmoved by outside forces and circumstances, for they shall see God. You know, there's lots of examples of this in the Scripture, but I want to mention one in particular, and that's Job that we read about in the Old Testament. You know, Job had it all, he lost it all, and he got it all back. And yes, he struggled, and yes, he doubted, and yes, his best friends mocked him, and yes, his wife told him to curse God and die, Ain't love grand. <laughs> Why don't you just curse God and die? But somehow, in the midst of it, he was always able to find God. And in the 19th chapter of Job, there's this scene, uh, it's in the Masoretic text, I, I, can't, I didn't find it as quickly in the, in the uh, Septuagint, but in the text I'm most familiar with, there's this scene where he's sitting on a dunghill, and he's covered with boils, and he's using broken pottery to lance these boils. You know, it's as bad as it gets. And hear his words. Have pity on me, have pity on me, O ye my friends. Yeah, you used to be somebody. Look at you now. You can hear him. For the hand of God has touched me. Why do you persecute me as God's? and are not satisfied with my flesh. What you see here, all that my words were written, all that they were printed in a book, that they were graven with an iron pen and lead in the rock forever. Now listen to this. In the midst of this, he says, For I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh, I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes will behold it, and not another. That's just one of the most beautiful passages of scripture to me. You know, you know, lovers get this a little bit. Think back to when you were in love. Father Philip, you used to be madly in love with Catherine. I know you still are. But you told me about a little walk, about a pond you walked around in Atlanta. You know, you know, you know when we're in love, we want to see their face. And all the phone calls and all the texts and all the letters in the world aren't the same as face to face with the one you love. And look... There's a Nobody loves you like God. He wants to be face to face with you. And the ultimate desire of the Christian really, really is to be face to face with God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. To behold God is the end and purpose of all our loving activity said again St. Augustine, whatever we do, whatever good deeds we perform, whatever we strive to accomplish, whatever we laudably yearn for, whatever we blamelessly desire, we shall no longer be seeking any of these things when we reach the vision of God. Indeed, what would one search for when one has God before his own eyes? Or what would satisfy one who would not be satisfied with God? We wish to see God who does not have this desire. We strive. Yes, we wish to see God. Who does not have this desire? We strive to see God. We are on fire with the desire of seeing God. It's it's as old as Job. (laughs) It's, it's, It's the early church. Moses had it. God, show me. Show show me your face. And he allowed him to see partially. The pure in heart are unmoved by the outside forces and circumstances of life in the world. Happiness is the ability to see the hand of God at work in all our circumstances. The pure in heart are becoming godly, Christ-like, and developing an inner peace. You know, I... I really think what this means is a person that pure in heart is, you know, whether it's good or whether it's bad, whether it's up or whether it's down, it, you can you can find God in the middle of it. That's advanced spirituality. That's advanced. Step seven: Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who become Christ-like. You know, when you, when you become a peacemaker, you start to look like Jesus. You know, I had a, a young man visit me. He was with OPF, the Orthodox Peace Fellowship, and they were talking about this and talking about this, and I was listening to all this, and I was particularly busy that day. It was, it's a good thing. I'm not saying it's not a good thing. But we don't have much peace in this world, do we? We, we don't have as much peace as we wish we had in, our, in many of our churches, do we? You know and I just I don't know he'd been talking I said I said you know why we don't have much peace in our in our world well, we have almost and we have very little in our churches he said no why why what do you think <laughs> I said because that's advanced that's real advanced spirituality and we're not advanced we're we're jumping back and forth step 1 and 2 and and trying to get to 3 trying to be obedient to God <laughs> That's where I live most of the time. We're not very advanced. You know, we have to be honest about that. And a good way to describe that honesty is, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Those who are pure in heart and unmoved in their experience have an inner peace, a peace which they can now bring to others. See, you can't be a peacemaker if you're in if you're in torment yourself. <laughs> it's very difficult. You know, I do think being involved with others could maybe help you find it, being merciful. But you you've, you've got to be able to see God and everything in order to really begin to find peace and then show peace and then and begin to look like a Christian. I mean, I want to be a Christian. One of the reasons I want to be a Christian is because I want to go to heaven. And look, most of y'all know me, but I'm look. I'm a believer. <laughs> I'm a believer, and I believe this is the path, and I believe there is a heaven, and I be, and I believe, and I believe this is liberty. This is freedom. This is redemption story. This is Bob Marley redemption story. Joel used to sing that song. <laughs> he sang it very well, by the way. The peacemakers are called sons of God. At the seventh step, the sojourner is now beginning to look like a Christian. You know, some of us have been around some people, like maybe it is monastics or people that really live a holy life. Maybe it's just a person in the parish who's just faithfully. You know, we we you know, we don't have any question that we know they're a Christian, <laughs> you know. Maybe we know everybody's a Christian in one sense that's been, been received into the church, but there's some people that just manifest it in a way that's moving that we know we're not there yet. You have to make peace with yourself. In, in one of the early writings of the church, it's an on, anonymous author, but he says, Peace is the only begotten Son of God, of whom the apostles say, For He Himself is our peace. So people who cherish peace are children of peace. But some may be thought to be peacemakers who make peace with their enemies but remain heedless of evils within. They are never reconciled in heart with their own internal enemies, yet they are willing to make peace with others. They are parodies of peace rather than lovers of peace, for that peace is blessed which is set in the heart. And it's a struggle to get there not that which is said in words. Do you want to know who is truly a peacemaker? Hear the prophet who said, keep your tongue from speaking evil and let your lips not speak deceit. Do not let your tongue utter an evil expression. So when we do that, it manifests something that's not very peaceful in the heart. Well, if you start to look like a Christian... If you start to look like Jesus, if you start to act like Jesus, you're going to suffer for it. There's a price to be paid. So we have the eighth step, the eighth beatitude. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Isn't it interesting that it ends, the reward for the last step is the same as the reward for the first. It reminds me of the... uh, the Paschal sermon of St. John Chrysostom. Revising. But you know, if you if you kept the fast from the beginning, enter into the joy of the Lord. But if you waited until the, you know, the you know the eleventh hour, enter into the joy of the Lord. And If you didn't do anything, but you had good intentions, enter into the joy of the Lord. <laughs> you know, it's it's it you know, as long as you're on the stairway, there's hope. And there's Potentially, progress. The reward ends where it begins. Anyone who embarks on the journey to heaven will, if he attains in any measure to the seventh step and begins to look and act like a Christian, will suffer for it. This is a participation in the sufferings of Christ. And although there's a price to be paid for following Jesus, the promise of the eighth step, as I said, is the same as the first. The journey ends where it begins. There's a, I think Jesus, you know, when I look at this, I see it almost that he augments this step. Some people call it a ninth beatitude. Um, But, and some people say that this one's specifically for the apostles. But, But the fact of the matter is, it's so connected to the eighth, that you really can't separate it. Because he goes on to say, Blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you. In other words, you're not just going to be persecuted for my name's sake. You want to know what that means? It's bad. (laughs) They better when they revile you and persecute you and say, All manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice! Be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I'm going a little long tonight. Can you bear with me? Because because if I if I start overlapping into the next one, we'll never make it. All right, <laughs> all right. If you if and if somebody has to leave, I understand. If you choose to take these steps to atti- ascend this scare, staircase to climb this ladder, there is a price to be paid. But the reward really of the first and the last, and St. Chrysostom says all of them is the kingdom of heaven. Listen to his words. Don't be discouraged if you do not hear the kingdom of heaven granted and promised with every single beatitude. For even if Jesus names the rewards differently, he still puts all of them in the kingdom of heaven For in fact, he says, those who mourn will be comforted, and those who show mercy will receive mercy, and those who are pure in heart will see God, and the peacemakers will be called the sons of God. In all these things, the Blessed One does nothing but hint at the kingdom of heaven. For people who enjoy these things will certainly reach the kingdom of heaven. So, do not suppose that the reward of the kingdom of heaven belongs only to the poor in spirit. It belongs to those who hunger for justice, and to the meek, and to all these blessed others without exception. For He set His blessing upon all these things to keep you from expecting something belonging to this material world. For if one wore a prize or a garland for things that were to be dissolved together with this present life things that flit away faster than a shadow, who would be blessed? you got to love (laughs) Chrysostom. It's always good. Now, we know the Beatitudes, but the next part is you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Hear these words after he completes the Beatitudes. and glorify your Father in heaven. You've got to see this in the context of the Beatitudes. Do these things, you are the salt of the earth. Take these steps, you are the light of the world. Climb this ladder, it cannot be hidden. It's basically talking about the power of doing the program. A power of doing what Jesus taught us to do. Well, tomorrow morning we'll go into the next chapter. We finished chapter 5. Sermon on the Mount's three whole chapters of the Bible. (laughs) Three whole chapters. And this next chapter is definitely telling us something about how we're supposed to do these steps. All right. So, Father, you want to stand and thank you for your attention.